Welcome to Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This is class number five, where we begin topic number two, that the Book of Mormon was written for our day. In this class, we address a very difficult subject, and that is the Antichrist, the enemies in the Book of Mormon, are like the enemies of faith today. Are you dealing with someone in your life who has walked away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and is now actively trying to destroy it and is trying to destroy your faith? Well, we can, great, we can learn great lessons from the Antichrist in the Book of Mormon on how to combat ourselves against those who are trying to destroy our faith. So I would love to spend another year on topic one, Jesus in the Book of Mormon. It's such a delight to look at Christ through the lens of the Book of Mormon. What does the book add to our understanding? But we have to move on. There's no way we can cover all that we could top on that topic. So let's move on to topic number two. I told you in this class we're going to tackle three topics. Topic number two, let me introduce it by having you turn to Mormon chapter eight. Mormon 8. Now, if you flip back to Mormon 7, and you can see that this is Mormon speaking. This is Mormon's last chapter. This is the last that Mormon wrote. Now go to chapter 8, verse 1. How does it begin? I, oh, that's just a, oh, that just pierces me to the soul because Mormon's gone. Mormon is one of the greatest heroes of the Book of Mormon that we don't even appreciate because he's writing the book without writing himself in it, which is brilliant. But Mormon was astounding. Moroni takes over, and he's very nervous about taking over because it's like, what I, I can't lose this record. Now notice what, Mormon, what Moroni knows. I want to start with verse 34. Clearly true of his father Mormon, but very much true of Moroni, finishing up this record. And he says, anyone want to read that? 34 and 35. Someone read it for me. Savannah, would you mind? Yeah. Behold, the Lord has shown unto me great marvelous things concerning that which will shortly come at that day when these things shall come forth among you. Behold, I speak unto you as if you were, pre you were present. And yet you are not. But behold, Jesus Christ has shown unto you me, and I know you're doing it. Who's this? I speak unto you. I've seen the days when this book will come forward. And I'm speaking to you. Mormon and Moroni saw our day in tremendous detail, I'm, I'm sure. Now, here's the key. Who, who got the gold plates? For whom was Mormon writing? How many Nephites ever read what was on the gold plates? They may have read the source material. Clearly, they had the Sermon of Abinadi. Clearly, they had King Benjamin's sermon. But what they never had was Mormon's commentary on the gold plates. That book was not written for the Nephites. That whole book was written for our day, who he saw in great detail. So Mormon's job is to see our day, see the problems, 
and then gather from Nephite history what would solve the problems of our day. That is the uniqueness of the Book of Mormon, is it was written for one dispensation. Not all. That book was written for us. And so notice what Moroni does. He's so worried that we'll reject it that he starts to say, it will come forth in a day when people won't believe in miracles. But what book requires you to believe in miracles because it came forth as a miracle? So the the book comes forward when it was needed. Verse 27, it shall come forth in a day when the blood of the saints shall cry against the Lord because of the Book of Mormon will come forth in a day when there are secret combinations. But of all the books on earth, which one helps us understand how to live with secret combinations? You see what he's saying? Don't reject the book because it has the solutions to your problems. It will come forth in a day where there are secret combinations, and this book will tell you how to overcome secret combinations. The Book of Mormon will come forth in a day when there will be a great deal of But what book addresses pride more than any other book? It will come forth in a day right before a massive destruction. The Book of Mormon will come forth in a day when the earth is about to be cleansed. But what book talks about the earth being cleansed and how to prepare for it? What's What's Moroni saying? Don't reject the book because why? It was written for you. It has the solutions to every problem of today. Now that's a fascinating way to look at the Book of Mormon, is what does it say about us? If it was written to solve our problems, then let's go through the, we'll we'll spend several weeks here How does the Book of Mormon address the problems of our day? Now, we're going to start with one that I have grown. I am fascinated that to find it in the Book of Mormon, because in Joseph Smith's day, I just don't think it was a problem. Not like today. I'd love to ask, would you raise your hand if someone you love, someone relatively in your inner circle, has left the church and is now trying to destroy your faith. Can I ask what relation you have? That's just one of my friends. Friend. Aunt. Old boyfriend. Who else? Ashley? An aunt. As I've asked that question, I keep hearing things like my dad, my mom, my former bishop, my best friend, my mission companion. Almost everyone I know has someone they love who has left the church but can't leave the church alone is fighting against the church. 
you will see anti-Mormons, you will see anti-church all over the place, much more so than I think in Joseph Smith's day. And it fascinates me that the Book of Mormon was written to solve that problem. There are four antichrists in the Book of Mormon. Their strategy then is the same as their strategy today. And so today we're going to learn from the four antichrists in the Book of Mormon. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, and a lot of the people in the world will disagree. To be antichrist is to be anti-Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So when I say an antichrist in the Book of Mormon, I'm really talking about those who are anti-Mormon today and can't leave the church alone and are trying to fight it. Now, people just can't walk away, right? They can't just leave the church and just leave us in peace. You know what? I, I can't stand mustard. I can't stand mustard. But I don't go around writing websites about how horrible mustard is. <laughs> I don't talk to people about how horrible mustard is. I just don't eat it. But when it comes to the church, people can't do that. If they walk away, they can't leave it alone. And so they fight against it. I want to help prepare you for those. Now, we're not going to try and destroy them. This isn't a how to take down an antichrist class. This is a how to combat the influence of an antichrist. How to prepare myself for antichrist material. You've all known someone who got sucked into Antichrist material and now they're fighting against the church. How do you and I prepare for that? So we're going to take the four Antichrists in the Book of Mormon and we're going to gather all we can and we're going to make a list of how to combat the influence of an Antichrist. See where we're going tonight? Do you see why the book was written for our day? The Antichrists in our day, or in the Book of Mormon's day, are the same type, they have the same pattern, the same approaches, the same philosophy, and we can learn how to defend ourselves against an antichrist. That's what we're gonna do tonight. Go ahead. I was just gonna say, the people who attack after they've left, it's kind of just like, they're just, yeah, like, almost like they're looking for justification. Yeah. Yeah, and again, we don't, I don't want to tear them down. I just want to help you defend against what they're going to do. So I need you, if you've got electronic scriptures, would you open up four pages in the Book of Mormon, four windows of the Book of Mormon. If you've got print, who's print? You may want to just have four fingers, okay? Here's, here are the four antichrists that we're going to talk about. The first one is Jacob 7, and that's Sherem. So open up one window to Jacob 7. We're going to be bouncing around these four quite a bit. The other one is Alma. You've all heard of this one, even though we don't really talk about them. The Alma chapter 1, and that's Nehor. After the manner of Nehor. You've heard that phrase a lot in the Book of Mormon, haven't you? They were after the manner of Nehor. Nehor is the next Antichrist. Then we've got the classic one that we all think of, Alma chapter 30, Korahor. Nehor Korahor, and then an unnamed one, we just know his teachings and his people, Alma 31 and on, is Zoram. The Zoramites and the Ramiumptum. 
Zoram was an antichrist and his teachings were antichrist. Okay, so find those. So open up four windows in your Book of Mormon. And we're going to compile all four. And we're going to start a list. And our list is going to be, we'll start it here. How to combat the influence. That's horrible spelling, sorry. It's too high for me to spell neatly. Okay, Antichrist, anti-Mormon. Same idea, same genre. How do we combat the influence? What are their strategies? All right, so number one, we should always list this first. Prevention is the best cure. It is better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. So prevention, prevention is best. So how do you prevent? Now, I'm just going to point where we're going to go. We're going to turn to 31. This is the Zoramites because Alma tells us where they went astray. What was the switch point that made them vulnerable to an antichrist? And I wish we could spend some time here. We're going to have to do this quickly. But oh, if I could shake my arms. This is where I would just have the music be really loud. This is the most important on our list. Prevention. Don't let yourself be vulnerable to an antichrist by doing this. Alma chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. What did the Zoramites do wrong? Sorry, I gotta get I gotta get my four pages. I was telling you to and I didn't. Alright. Tell me what the Zoramites did wrong. Start in eight, nine, and maybe ten. Let's just start with eight and nine. Now, the Zoramites were dissenters from the Nephites. Therefore, they had had the word of God preached unto them, but, see that word, but? They had had the word preached unto them, but they had fallen into great errors for, that word for is significant. This is Mormon saying, here's where they went wrong. They would not observe to keep the commandments of God and his statutes according to the law of Moses. Neither would they observe the performances of the church to continue in prayer and supplication to God daily that they might not enter into temptation. What's the prevention? Tell me what's the prevention. Daily performances of the church. Never walk away from the performances of the church. The performances. So let's list, name, name two or three things we're supposed to do every day. Pray. Pray. Scriptures. Okay. Name two or three things we're supposed to do every week. Sacrament. Family home evening. Maybe temple, depending on your schedule. Name two or three things we're supposed to do every month. Fast. 
tithing, fast offerings, maybe temple. Name two or three things we're supposed to do every year. Okay, so you get the list of performances. They are the, the greatest defense. Performances of the church. I have served, unfortunately, on numerous disciplinary councils. I have been part of the excommunication and the disfellowship of several people. Every single time I have asked the same question. I always ask one question among the questions I ask. I always ask, when was the last time you had a daily habit of praying and reading the scriptures? What do you think the most common answer is among people who are in for a disciplinary action and either disfellowshipped or excommunicated? They either say it's been a long time or I never have or something like that. I have never participated in the excommunication or the disfellowship of someone who read the scriptures daily. I never have. I wish I could emphasize that more strongly. If you want to combat the influence of an antichrist, pray daily. Read your scriptures, attend the temple, take the sacrament, pay your tithing. The performances of the church. Prevention is the greatest cure. Now, number two, know their strategy. Recognize, oh my goodness, learn how to spell. Oh my goodness, Rack. Help me with strategy. Stra Is that right, strategy? Okay, recognize their strategies. Let me give you three strategies that all antichrists have in common. The funny thing is, are they all the same? If you put these four men in a room, would they get along? They'd fight like cats and dogs, right? They would disagree like crazy. They all come from different forms, and they don't get it wrong. This one's not even religious, is it? These three are super religious. So they come in all sorts of forms, but they all have three things in common. Number one, they all use the F word. Bear with me. Every antichrist I've ever met, every anti-Mormon webpage uses the F word. You Mormons are fools. They are going to tray and make you feel like a fool. Because no one likes to be feel like a fool, right? What do people do when you make them feel like a fool? They go the opposite direction. And the most common trait is Mormons are fools. Mormons believe in magic underwear. Mormons think Jesus and Satan are brothers. Mormons are fools. Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by putting his head in a hat. Their strategy is to make you feel like a fool. Go to any Mormon website, hear any conversation. I guarantee their strategy is to make you feel like a fool. So you do what? 
I'm not a fool, and you walk away. Let me show you. Ready? Let's count the F words in the Book of Mormon. Let's do Zor. Let's do Korahor. Alma chapter 30. Let's do Korahor. His is probably the most obvious. I'll do this version because I have them in two different colors. All right. Alma chapter 11. Count the F words. Now, we might as well do number two so that we can count them at the same time. Not only will they try and make you feel foolish, but they're going to try and re- tell me what they're all going to suggest. That you're, that you're restricted. That you're not free. You've all heard it, right? You Mormons, you don't think for yourself. You just do whatever your prophet tells you to do. You can't think for yourself. You're not free. When people leave the church, what do they always say? I feel free. What are they trying to say? You Mormons are not free. You're controlled. You're restricted. You're bound down. Okay, so we're going to count both of those. Ready? Count the F words and count the bound down, restricted form of words. All right, here's Korahor, starting in verse 13. I do the F words in orange, and the other ones are in yellow. Green will be another list. O ye that are... No, no, that's the wrong way. So orange is, orange is restricted. O ye that are bound down. That's what we are. That's what Mormons are. This is Alma 30. This is Korahor. Alma 30, verse 13. O ye that are bound down under a foolish and vain hope, why do you yoke yourselves with such foolish things? Why do you look for a Christ? For no man can know of that. Green is his doctrine. We'll cover his doctrine later. Behold, these things which ye call prophecies, ye are sounded down by holy prophets. Behold, they are simply foolish traditions. Look at verse 16. This is very common among anti-Mormon material. You look forward and say that you see a remission of your sins. This is the effect of a frenzied mind. And this derangement of your mind becomes, become, comes because of your traditions. Verse 18. He did preach away, leading the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads. What's the idea? When you leave the church, you are free. Do you see the suggestion? Now tell me what they're trying to do. What's the motive here? If I can make you feel foolish in your beliefs, you're going to do what? No one wants to be a fool, and so we do what? We walk away. No one wants to feel restricted, so we cast it off. Do you see what they're trying to do? They mock our beliefs as foolish and restricting. Um, just a couple more. How about verse 23? Now the high priest's name was Gedona, and Korahor said unto him, Because I do not teach the foolish traditions of your fathers, because I do not teach this people to bind themselves down under foolish ordinances and performance, which are laid by ancient priests too. Oh, here's a common one. The brethren are keeping secrets. They're not telling you all the truth. They're keeping you in ignorance. They know stuff that they don't want to tell you. They want to usurp power and authority and keep you in ignorance 
and not lift up your heads, but be brought down. How many, pe- how many times have you heard this? So common, right? Well, guess what? We are not fools for believing in Christ. And we are anything but restricted. The gospel frees us because we choose to let go of certain things. We are not controlled by them. But this, see the attempt? Again, foolish traditions kept in bondage. Oh, here's a common one. Not enjoy your rights and privileges. You tell anyone that they are not enjoying their rights and privileges, what are you hoping they'll do? You see the idea? Do you see what they're trying to do? Don't fall for it. Recognize their strategy. I am not a fool and I am not restricted. I'm not going to buy into it. Let's, let's do Nehor. I just want to show you Nehor's version. Go to Alma chapter 1. Alma was, or Nehor was teaching. Look at verse 4. That they might lift up their heads and rejoice. Because they're what? They're free now that they've left the church. Do you see it? Okay, let's do one more. Don't fall for this. You are not a fool for believing in Christ. If anything, those who reject Christ will prove to be the fools. Those who are bound to sin will be the restricted ones. But there is a third one. Every antichrist will take truth and twist it. And that's their strategy. They'll take truth and they'll twist it. Be able to recognize the twist. So let's go through all four. Let's find their strategy. Let's find their doctrine. And you tell me if you can see the twist in the truth. Because they'll take something that's true and they twist it. All right, Sherem, Jacob chapter 7. What is Sherem's truth? What is his twisted truth? All right, Jacob chapter 7. Let's jump right to um, seven. What's the right way? What's the right way? Law of Moses. Now, I'm going to kind of go to generic here. Sherem is trying to say that something else will save you. Now, you need saving. There's the truth. You need saving. There's the truth. You need saving. You know it. You believe it. But something else will save you. Now, what false doctrine do many members of the church come close to believing that's very similar to that? Like, do your sins die with Jesus? Oh, that's one of them. But the more common one is, what is Sherem suggesting? Obedience to the law of Moses will save you. And a lot of members of the church act as if their own obedience will save them. Will your obedience save you? No. Who will save you? A Savior will save you. 
don't believe the false doctrine. Yes, we need saving, but the only one that can save us is Christ. He's the only one. Don't fall for a twist. Don't fall for Satan's twist that if you were just a little bit more obedient, you'd be saved. That you need to be perfectly obedient and then you'll be saved. That you're acceptable by God if you're perfect. You're acceptable by God no matter what and then be cleansed by Christ. You don't have to be perfect. You just need to be clean. And you need a Savior. You see the twist? Okay, uh, Alma 1, Nehor's Doctrine. This is a common one. A lot of people today believe this one. Jacob, or Alma chapter 1, what's Nehor's twist? Verse 4. That everyone's going to be saved. You're going to be saved no matter what. Now, is that true in a sense? Tell me how it's true. Saved from death. No one has to do anything other than come to earth. Everyone on this planet will be saved from death. Okay, give me another one. Saved into a kingdom of glory. I think we could count the number of sons of perdition on one hand, maybe two. I think everyone else goes to a kingdom of glory. Everyone will go to a kingdom of glory. But what's the twist here? If I were to say, hey, everyone's going to be saved, how many of you increase your obedience? Hey, everyone's going to be saved. Let's work harder. What's the, po what's the point? If I say everyone's going to be saved, what's my, what am I trying to hope? What am I, what am I hoping will happen? Do, I don't, well, then who cares? If we're all going to be saved, then why try, right? You see what the twist is going to do? He's going to take a truth. He takes a truth and twists it so that I, it, it leads me away from Christ. There's the, do you recognize what he just did? He took truth and twisted it. Yes, we're all going to be resurrected. But he presents it in such a way that I stop trying. Brilliant philosophy, right? If you're Satan. Okay, let's do another one. Forgive me if I get on my uh, <clears throat> soapbox for this one. My degree is in biology. And I feel very strongly about this one because it's very common. It has been approved for teaching in our schools. So let's go to Alma chapter 30, verse 17. This one is powerfully subtle. Alma chapter 30, verse 17. What is Korohor's doctrine? Tell me what is Korohor's doctrine. Anyone see it? Okay, no atonement because why? We don't need an atonement because every man prospers according to his strength. We call that survival of the fittest, right? Now, where is that true? Where is that the law? Where is the law survival of the fittest? And if you're the strongest, then you survive. Where is that true? In the animal kingdom. 
So what's Cora Horse Twist? We are animals. Therefore, there's no right or wrong. There's just what? Survival. We are evolved animals is a subtle way of saying we obey the laws of the animal kingdom. And there's no right or wrong. There's just survival. And that seems to be a very prevailing theory among many people is that it's not wrong. The problem is we're not animals, are we? We don't act like animals. Let me illustrate. Ashley, can I pick on you? You give birth to a mentally retarded child. Do you kill it? Do you end its life? You keep it? Do you know how much time and effort that's going to take? What if you can't have the number of children you would like to have because of all the time and effort this child takes? Do you kill the child so you can have more kids? You raise that child? Either that's the dumbest animal on the planet Earth or she's not an animal. And we don't live by those rules. And we don't have those instincts. To me, the greatest evidence of God is the moral instinct to do what's right. Animals don't have that. If I'm a buck and I have no does, and over there is a buck with seven does, can I go kill him and take his does? Yeah. Do they throw me in prison? Do they resent me because they took out their lover? What do the seven does do? Okay, we're with you now. And if we have a baby that is uh, a little deformed, what do we do? We leave it. Not slowing us down. Are we doing something wrong here? Are we breaking any moral rules here? Why not? Because we're animals. And we live by a different rule. If I'm a baby spider and I eat my mom to survive, have I done something wrong? Korahor's subtle twist is so tempting. We are animals. Therefore, there's no moral. There's no absolute right. There's just survival. You see what he did? Truth with a twist. The truth is, would self-checkouts work in the animal kingdom? <laughs> How would self-checkouts work in the animal kingdom? How about pay your own taxes? Red lights. Have you ever stopped at a red light in the middle of the night and no one's coming? You still sit there because you just can't for the life of you go through the red light. It's just morally not right. Now, how many animals would sit there at the red light waiting for it to turn green? Now, I love animals and they serve a wonderful purpose on this planet. But to me, the greatest evidence that we are not animals is this moral code inside of us. That every time I'm on the tracks and there's an elderly woman 
Every fiber of my being is saying what? You stand up and let her sit. I know I'm not an animal. But you see the twist? Okay, here's another subtle one, very dangerous one. Let's go to Zoram, chapter 31. Ramiumptum. Do you see the truth with a twist? Anyone tell me, I'll let you, I'll let you ponder this one. What is, Korahor, what is Zoram's doctrine? That whole Ramiumptum. Standing on that Ramiumptum, what is their doctrine? Alma chapter 31. Let me point out a couple verses. Um, first of all, look at verse 16. Can you see the F word in verse 16? It's a C word. Childishness of their fathers. Verse 17, foolish. Also in 17, bind them down. But look at 16 and 17 and 18 and tell me the twist here. What's the truth with a twist? So verse 17, it's like, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then uh, thou hast selected us that we shall be saved. Okay, so God has favorites. Is that true? In one sense, is it true? In what sense is it true? I need Abraham and a family to save all my other children. I need someone who I can bless so that you take the gospel to the whole world. Is that right? I mean, house of Israel, right? He gave the gospel to the house of Israel. That's true. But what's the twist here? We're his favorites. Now, there's two ways to look at this one. God has favorites and it's me. Now, what happens if you believe that? Which a lot of people do, right? God has favorites and it's me. But there's another side of that. What's the other side of that? God has favorites and it's not me. Both of those are false doctrines. But both of those take a truth and twist it. So watch for the twist. All right, very briefly, we could get carried away here, but very briefly, give me modern day truth with a twist examples. Let me get you started. I don't need to go to church to find God. I can find him in nature. Is that true? Absolutely true. What's the twist? I don't need a religious organization. I don't need ordinances. I don't need a prophet. Okay, give me another one. I don't need a marriage. If the church cared about poor people, they wouldn't build such nice, expensive temples. Now, is that true? Is that true that we should take care of poor people? Yes. But do you see what the twist is? The irony is, can you name a church that takes better care of poor people? <laughs> but we just don't toot that horn, do we? And is it true that we are taking care of the poor by building temples? But do you see the twist? The church has so much money that I don't need to pay my tithing. Truth with a twist. So learn to recognize when what they're trying to do they're making me feel like a fool they're making me feel restricted and then they take truth 
and twist it. Learn to recognize the twist. Now, that means, how am I going to do that? How am I going to do this? Can you see where we're going to go with this? I need to... Where am I going to go? What's the antidote here? I need to have a testimony. And I need to have a testimony based on evidence. You can see that in so many places. Um, let's go to chapter 30. Let me show you what, Cor what Alma does to Korahor when he throws his twist at him. Notice how Alma stands against it. Verse 39, 41. Alma 30, 39 through 41. What does he say? Uh, even then, go to the last sentence of 39. I know there's a God. I have a testimony of ordinances. I understand why I need to pay my tithing. I understand that I am a child of God, not an animal. I understand I have a testimony. Now, what I love is verse 44. He not only in 39 and 41 says, I have a testimony, I have a testimony. He then says, here's my evidence. Let me lay out my case. You need to have a testimony, but you need to know why you believe. You need to know what you believe, but you also need to know why you believe it. Why are ordinances important? Why do I need a prophet? Why is it that I pay my tithing? Why do I need temple ordinances? I know I do, and here's why I know it. Do you have a testimony based on evidence? So as an example, what is Alma's four great evidences that there is a God? I know there's a God. He says that. I know there is a God in verse 39. And then in verse 40, he says, here's my evidence. What's his evidence? Alma has four very convincing evidences that there is a God. Number That's three. Let's do the two before it. Number one, the testimony of these thy brethren. How many people on this planet believe in a supreme being? How many people on this planet believe in a supreme being? Billions. Where would billions of people get an idea that there's a supreme being? That is convincing evidence. Billions of people. And number two, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses who say, I've seen him. I've seen him. And then their life makes their testimony credible. Joseph Smith came forward and said, I've seen the Father. I've seen God. I know he exists. And then he lived a life that made that testimony credible. He produced a book that made that testimony credible. You have a hard time dis dis dismissing the prophets and their testimony. Number three. If there's no God, explain the scriptures. Where did they come from and why? Why would they even be written? Who would write them and why? 
who would love them. And number four, physics itself says that all things increase in randomness unless there is a source of power. If you don't put energy into your room, what happens to your room? If you don't put energy into your flower bed, what happens to your flower bed? So the universe should be increasing in chaos and randomness. But as we look out to the sky, we see order. And the only way there's order, the only way there's such massive order is if what? There is a source of power that keeps that order. And that has to be God. Now, do you see what Alma just did? Do you, have you ever thought about what your reasons are? I want you to be able to say, I know the church is true, but I want you to be able to say why. I know God lives, but why do you know he lives? I know Jesus is the Christ, and here's my evidence. Have you ever pondered what is your evidence for your testimony? Peter said, be ready always to give a reason for the hope that is within you. What do you know for sure? What is your reason? I know God lives because he has communicated with me. He's connected with me in ways I cannot describe, but I know he has connected with me. I know God lives because every one of us have a moral code inside us that is telling us to do right. And that to me is the greatest evidence of God. What's your reason? Would you ponder today what your reason is? What is your reason? So have a testimony based on evidence. What is your evidence? What is your reason? This is what Alma did. I know there's a God. Look at the order in the universe. Someone has to be controlling it. I know there's a God because so many people believe in him. I know Joseph Smith was a prophet of God because I have read that book. I have spent my life in that book and I know like I know nothing else in my life that no one could have written that book without God's help especially a 23-year-old. I know that. So when they make me feel like a fool, I hold on to what I know. Do you, see the, do you see what Alma did? Let's do a couple more. Let me just address, let me do four and five. We'll have to stop there. But turn with me to Jacob. Jacob and Sharon. I want to go to Jacob 4. I think Jacob 4 has two great thoughts in it that I'm going to, we've already mentioned one. And so let's combine, let's add this other one. Jacob chapter 4, what makes you unshaken? What would make us unshaken? Look at verse 6, Jacob chapter 4, sorry, verse, uh, we ought to, now let's go to verse 6. Jacob chapter 4, verse 6. We search the prophets 
and have many revelations and the spirit of prophecy and having all things, all these witnesses, we obtain a hope and our faith becomes unshaken. Where do they get that unshakenness? And I, I, I don't want to be so simple as prophet, prayer and scripture, prayer and scripture, but connect with God. I have connected with God. And if that comes in form of temple or scripture or prayer, whatever the means, whatever the means, you need to have a connection with God. Now, they often emphasize scripture. Turn with me to Jacob chapter 7. After the whole fiasco, have you ever, um, have you ever known someone who got in an accident and was thrown from a car because they weren't wearing a seatbelt? Their reaction to that is everywhere they go, they put a seatbelt on. They overemphasize what they should have done that would have prevented it. I have an ancestor who crossed the plains barefoot. So she never let her children go without shoes and socks. Her kids could never take their socks off. Do you see that reaction? Because this is what happened. We overreact. So what was their reaction to Sherem? Jacob chapter 7, after they get the whole thing solved, look at verse 23. What was their reaction? Almost as if to say, if we had done this, that wouldn't have been a problem. What do they do? They search the scriptures. But that's simply a means, isn't it? How about chapter 31? Let's go to verse 5. Alma chapter 31, verse 5. What does Alma say he's going to do to go talk to the Zoramites? For many of you, this is probably one of your favorite scriptures. Anyone want to read it? Alma 31, 5. This is a very common favorite scripture. Read it, Abby. And now, as the preaching of the word had a great tendency to lead the people to do that which was just, yea, it had had more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword, or anything else that which had happened unto them. Therefore, Alma thought it was expedient that they should try the virtue of the Word of God. But again, that's simply a means. What's the means trying to accomplish? Connect with God. Have it, recognize what they're doing. I see what you're doing, and I'm not a fool. I recognize you're doing, and I'm not restricted. I see what you're trying to twist, but you've twisted it. I know that's not true. And I know it because I have a testimony based on evidence. And I... I'm not walking away. Do you remember what Joseph Smith says? I've seen a light. I knew it. And I knew that God knew it. And I can't deny it. I can't walk away because I'm connected to him. Now, let me just do one more. Can I just raise a warning voice? Turn with me to Alma chapter 30 to Korahor. Do you remember at the end of the story what Korahor confesses? What's Korahor's confession at the end of the, at the, end of the story? Alma chapter 11, or 30. How does Korahor, the whole end of the story, remember what he says? What's his testimony at the end? I, this is what he did, but what does he say? Look at verse 52. I, Peter, 
So if he always knew there was a God, why did he teach what he taught? Now, I forgive me if I just get back on my soapbox, but everyone who walks away from this church, everyone who fights against this church, I believe in their soul they know it's true, which is why they fight against it. And Korahor says, I always knew there was a God. So why did he teach it if he knew it was false? Go to verse 53. I think you need to understand that anti-Mormon material is what? Is? Anti-Mormon material is? Pleasing unto the carnal mind. Because if the gospel's not true, my natural man gets to be free. Anti-Mormon material is pleasing to the carnal mind. And once you grab it, once it gets a hold of you, you start teaching it. And when you start teaching it, what happens? I believed it. So Korahor says, I know there's a God, but why doesn't Alma lift the curse? I know there's a God. Why doesn't Alma lift the curse? Remember? You'd go right back to teach. How powerful is the carnalness of anti-Mormon material? So let me tell you this. You don't have to answer their questions. That's the trap. One of the ways they operate is, I have some questions for you Mormons. And if you can't answer them, then... But what happens when we answer them? I had an interesting experience. One time I was teaching seminary and this girl came to me and says, I'm dating this boy and he's anti and he's trying to convince me and he has all these questions and I can't answer them. Can you answer them, Brother Dunford? And I said, you have him come with his five top questions and we'll answer. He came and I felt we answered them very satisfactorily. So what did he do? He had five more. And if I had answered those, he has five more. And I came to the conclusion, I don't need to answer the questions. That's the trap. I'm not going to fall into the trap. If I can't answer every question you ask, it doesn't mean I'm a fool and I should walk away. Because I know something. And I'm connected to something. You don't have to answer every question. Be aware that that material can suck you in. And it is very carnally pleasing. It's okay to just walk away. Emily. Um, even if you look at the scriptures, and this is a pattern I saw in Christ with confounded Pharisees or something, he almost never directly answered their questions. Yeah. Ever. And if he had, you know what would have happened, right? Ten more. He never answered their questions. I don't have to. I don't have to answer your question. Brilliant observation. Truth. Now, let me show you a couple of examples. Look at verse 20. Alma chapter 30, verse 20. The, anti, the people in Jershon, the anti-Nephites, they were more wise than many of the Nephites because what did they do? They took him, bound him, and kicked him out. 
I don't have to answer your questions. I don't know that answer, and I don't have to answer that, and I'm not going to get sucked into it. I know what I know. And just because I can answer your question doesn't make me a fool. How about this one? I love this one. Look at verse 29. What does the chief judge do? Tell me what the chief judge does. This is Jesus. This is what, exactly what Emily said. Tell me what the chief judge does. I don't need to answer. I don't need to answer. Now, I've learned that most people who ask questions aren't asking questions. They simply want me to question. And they're not looking for answers. So my warning to you is be very careful with anti-Mormon material because it is pleasing to the carnal mind. Now, may I tell you, I am aware of every argument they've ever made. I am aware of every anti-Mormon argument. I know exactly what they've stated. I know what they claim. And I've investigated every one of them. I have found answers. And my testimony is intact, and I know the church is true. So there's a difference between being ignorant of what they're claiming and getting sucked into the game. And so educate yourself. Read, follow up, find answers. One of the evidences against Joseph Smith are the kinderhook plates. People use the kinderhook plates to say, see, Joseph wasn't a prophet. Well, do some digging. All you have to do is do a little research, and all of a sudden you'll say, you're using kinderhook pranks against the Joseph? You're kind of foolish for claiming that, because the kinderhook pranks really don't disprove Joseph at all. Or here's a funny one. People will say, the punctuation in the Book of Mormon is simply from the Bible. They're just copying the punctuation from the book of the Bible. And it's obvious that they've, the, 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 the error, no, how do I say it? The errors of punctuation in the Bible have found their way into the Book of Mormon. Therefore, it's fraud. Okay, guess what? Guess how, many, how much punctuation Joseph Smith included in the translation of the Book of Mormon? None. Who put the punctuation in? The typesetter. And if he had a question, where did he probably turn? So don't use that as evidence against the Book of Mormon. Be informed. Don't be ignorant. But understand that getting sucked into that material is very dangerous because it is pleasing to the carnal mind. I remind you, I want to end going back to this one. The safest form, the safest way to protect yourself against the influence of an Antichrist is read the Book of Mormon. Read it every day. Pray. Go to the temple. And pay your tithing. Be connected with God. I want you to know I have read every one of their questions. And I know the gospel's true. And I know Joseph was a prophet. I'm not ignorant of what they're claiming. But I know that God lives. And I know that no one could have written that book 
especially a 23-year-old, in a single draft in 70 days without any outside help. I couldn't have written that book in 100 years with a 1,000 drafts and a master's degree. No way he writes it at 23. That's my evidence. I know God. I talked to him. I spoke to him just a couple hours ago. He spoke to me. I know he lives. Have a testimony based on evidence. And don't get sucked into material that is carnally pleasing. I bear you my testimony that there are antichrists all over and all around your life. Be prepared. Be preventive, but be prepared. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. Thank you for joining us for Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon podcast class. This has been class number five, where we begin topic number two, that the Book of Mormon was written for our day. In this episode, we talked about how the enemies of Christ in the Book of Mormon are patterns of those trying to destroy our faith today. Did you recognize any patterns that you have observed in people today trying to destroy faith? What came out of today's lesson that will help strengthen you against very real entities in your life who are trying to destroy your faith? Would you take a moment this week and share your thoughts with me or with the class or with someone in your inner circle? What are you going to do this week and in the future to combat the influence of those trying to destroy your faith? Yeah.